pray together. Father, it's good to be reminded from Romans and the rest of your word that all things are ultimately about you and not about us. And we need reminders of that, Lord. You are the great God of all the universe. We are finite little creatures whose life is a vapor compared to an eternal God who was and is and is to come. And so we bow before you, we acknowledge you are God, we are thankful, many of us can say you are our God, we belong to you, you are our Father in heaven, we are under your care and provision and protection and guidance, you are so good to us as your children, and we need you, Lord, this morning to understand your word. We need your Holy Spirit to help us in the fight of faith to embrace what you have to say about reality and that you would work among us and in us as we hear your word. I pray for anyone who is here today who has never experienced your saving grace in Christ never experienced the miracle of being born again to a living hope. Lord, that even today you would be pleased to highlight your grace and mercy in bringing a lost, dead rebel to life and to become a worshiper. So, Lord, we are dependent on you for everything to happen this morning. We cannot do anything, as Brett read earlier, apart from you. So we look to you now for enabling grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have been looking at the book of Job to help us understand God's role in our suffering. In our text for today, we'll see Job's response to losing his health. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Job chapter 2 as we continue our study in this Old Testament book. In chapter 1, we saw how Job responded to the loss of all of his possessions and all of his children. And though Satan had predicted that Job would curse God if these blessings were taken away. Instead, Job worships God. He has a heart that says, God is more valuable to me than all the possessions I just lost. And I love God more than all the dear children I just lost. God is my all in all. He is still worthy of honor, whether I have things and kids or not. And in the midst of his deep sorrow, he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed 
be the name of the Lord. And in case we want to try to correct Job and say, no, it was Satan. God wasn't involved with what happened, like some writers want to do. The biblical writer directed by the Holy Spirit adds, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God or charge God with wrong. Literally, he did not ascribe unseemliness to God. He did not say God did something he should not have done. So Job passes an incredibly severe test of faith, but his suffering isn't over yet. There is more to come in chapter 2. So we'll begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. So God brings Job up to Satan again and says, he is still holding fast his integrity in spite of the fact you incited me to destroy him for no good reason. And Satan's reply is, the test wasn't hard enough. So read verse 4 and 5. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. Satan challenges God to touch Job's body and predicts that if he afflicts Job physically, Job will curse God. He will think unworthy thoughts about him. He will say dishonoring things to him. He will turn his back on God and want nothing to do with him. There's an old advertising slogan that said, if you've got your health, you've got just about everything. And Satan believes if you lose your health, you'll lose just about everything, including your faith. Why would anyone honor a God who doesn't spare them from physical suffering? That's the question on the table. Why would anybody serve a God that doesn't keep them healthy, that allows physical suffering into their lives? Satan's betting on the fact that that will be enough to get Job to curse God. Verse 6, so the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. So God could have said Job already passed the first test. He has suffered enough already. There's nothing more to prove. This is unnecessary. But for good and wise reasons, God grants Satan permission to do what he wants to do to Job and sets a limit that he is not allowed to. To kill him. So verse 7 and 8. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote 
Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Yes, he has struck with loathsome sores. I looked up loathsome. In the dictionary, it means disgusting or detestable. Mine has boil, and I looked up a boil is a purulent, which means pus-filled, and painful nodule lodged beneath the skin. So think of a few hundred pus-filled blisters all over your body. Crown of your head, all over your torso, down your legs, bottom of your feet, hundreds of them. One writer said, it is a pain to have even one hot ulcer upon the skin. But to have one's body covered from head to toe with them, that is the worst and most tormenting disease that Satan could think of. So remember, Satan's evil design is to make Job curse God. So in order to get that to happen, he wants to make Job as miserable as possible. And this is what he came up with. Hundreds of boils all over his body. Look at how Job describes his condition in some other verses. Go to chapter 7, verse 5. My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. Chapter 30, verse 16. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me and my gnawing pains Take no rest. Verse 27. I am seething within and cannot relax. Days of affliction confront me. Verse 30. My skin turns black on me and my bones burn with fever. Next week, Lord willing, in chapter 3, we'll see that Job wishes he could die. It's so bad. He just wants to die. And keep in mind, there's no pain relievers. There's no other medications you can take to take the edge off of this. The only thing he can do to get a little relief from the constant torment of all these skin boils is to scrape his skin with a piece of broken pottery, which is probably why there's dirt and worms and festering and all this nastiness happening on his body. Verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now many of us are blessed to have a spouse who can support us during a trial. My wife Angela is so good at encouraging me to look to God and look at his word just to get me back in touch with reality when I'm discouraged. But Job's wife isn't doing that for him. 
she's not helpful at all. She questions the value of Job holding on to his integrities. She says, why do you remain loyal to a God who treats you this badly? Shake your fist at heaven, lash out at God, and just end this awful misery. Which, of course, is exactly what Satan wants Job to do. Curse God and show what he really values, most of all, is his health and not his God. He failed on the test. He thought possessions were more valuable to him than God. Failed that one. Oh, his kids are more valuable to him than God. No, he failed that one. Oh, how about his health? If we can get him to curse God because he loses his health, I'll win. And here's Job's wife saying, do that. So how does Job respond to his intense, relentless Physical suffering. In chapter 7 it says he's been feeling this way for months now. And how does he respond to his wife's suggestion that he could escape the unbearable pain by cursing God and getting it over with? Well, let's read the first part of verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Please don't talk like those who lack wisdom. It would be very foolish to curse God because of my suffering. And then he says, why? Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? We receive good from God's hands, things that we like, things that are pleasing to us. We see those as gifts from God. Shall we not also accept adversity or evil from him as well? The things we don't like, the things that are displeasing, the things we wish weren't happening. In other words, God is sovereign over all things. To paraphrase what he said in chapter 121, the Lord gave me health and the Lord has taken away my health. He is in control of both and he is worthy to be honored in both. It's not as though we experience good things from him, but what we call bad things come from some other source. Everything ultimately comes from God. And therefore, we need to accept whatever happens to us as part of his will for us. So what should we think about Job's conclusion? And the author again tells us how we should think about what we just heard from Job. He says, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. If it is a sin to bear false witness against our neighbor, how much more would it be a sin to bear false witness against God? By saying God did something like ordain Job's suffering when he never did that. 
That would be false witness. That would be a sin. That's against the Ten Commandments. So the author says, Job didn't do that. He clarifies that when he says, I have received these painful boils ultimately from God, that Job is not falsely accusing God there. And then, at the end of the book, the author tells us in 42.11, the source of Job's afflictions. Go to Job 42.11. Again, this is the divinely inspired author. This is God's word. God's comment on this whole book. Verse 11, Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him. Look at this next phrase. For all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. Losing possessions, losing children, losing health, were calamities the Lord brought on Job. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And several verses tell us specifically that that includes what we see as negative things. So go to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. beginning at verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me that men may know from the rising of the setting to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating Darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Now, just to clarify, God is not the author of sin or evil. But here, God himself says he is the one who ultimately brings about adversity as well as well-being. God says, I do that. I do both those things, not just the one. Go to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. Verse 37 and 38. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? The context of those verses in Lamentations is the middle of an awful siege and ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. And many people are starving. Many people will be killed. Thousands of people are going to lose their home and be carted off to exile in Babylon. And God says... That's coming forth from me. Amos chapter 3, verse 6, which could also easily apply to that scenario. Amos 3, 6, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? 
One last one, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. So stop and think for a little bit about the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? That phrase is the source of the book Crook in the Lot by Thomas Boston. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. So think again. God has made the one as well as the other. God made days of prosperity and days of adversity. He did both. I remember hearing a devotional on, they read these verses and said the exact opposite of it. I was just scratching my head. It's like, it just said God did both. And they said God does the adverse, or the prosperity, but he doesn't have anything to do with the adversity. I'm like, no. <laughs> it just said, consider that he does both. So here's something from G.I. Packer. God exercises purposeful management and control over everything, everywhere, all the time, and nothing happens without his being involved. The Lord reigns. We should believe, even when we cannot as yet see, that all events will eventually appear to us from one standpoint or another as matter for praise. God knows what he is doing and is in the process of achieving something wise and good every moment. So when we were just singing a few minutes ago, you shall reign forever, and behold our God seated on his throne, we were saying, God, you are in sovereign control over everything, everywhere, all the time, including our suffering. Nothing, including our suffering, happens apart from your will. An illustration that might help us to have a category for multiple levels of causation is, what was the cause of death for King Duncan? Don't feel bad if you don't know who King Duncan is. Okay, If you haven't had an English literature class, you might not know that off the top of your head. But I'll, I'll fill you in. So, a coroner, a coroner doing an autopsy would say the cause of death was a mortal wound inflicted from a sword. And that would be true at one level. And you as the reader would know and say it was Macbeth who used the sword to kill King Duncan. And you would be right at another level. But ultimately, the cause of death was Shakespeare because he wrote the play in the first place. And in a similar way, it's not perfect, but in a similar way, if we ask, what was the cause of Job's physical suffering? A doctor would say, boils caused by bacteria. That's how you get boils, bacteria. And that's true at that level. 
You as the reader, and myself as the reader, we look at verse 7 and say, it was Satan that smote or struck Job with those boils. And that's true at another level. But God is the ultimate cause of Job's health issues. And God is in sovereign control over all of our health issues. Go to Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. This is when God is calling Moses to go to Egypt, deliver a message to Pharaoh, and Moses keeps giving excuses for why he doesn't think he should be the one to do that. And at one point in the conversation, God says in Exodus 4, verse 11, The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And the answer, of course, is yes, it is the Lord that does those things. And so this is from Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God. Here, God specifically ascribes to his own work the physical afflictions of deafness, muteness, and blindness. These physical afflictions are not merely the products of defective genes or birth accidents. Those things may indeed be the immediate cause, but behind them is the sovereign purpose of God. This God who is the God of deafness, muteness, and blindness is also the God of cancer, arthritis, and all other afflictions that come to us or our loved ones. None of these afflictions just happen. They are all within the sovereign will of God. The first thing we have to do in order to trust God is determine if God is in control, if he is sovereign over the physical area of our lives. If he is not, if illness and afflictions just happen, then of course there is no basis for trusting God. But if God is sovereign in this area, then we can trust him without understanding all the theological issues involved in the problem of pain. To get that. God is either sovereign over our physical stuff or he's not. If he's not, just pack it up. How can you trust a God who can't handle that? It just happens or Satan just does it and God can't stop it. There's there's no reason to trust a God who can't handle things. But if God really is sovereign like the whole Bible says he is, then we have every reason to trust him when, not if, those physical afflictions come to us. And knowing that doesn't make it easy or that the pain somehow hurts less than it really does, like people who believe in God's sovereignty don't hurt as much as people that don't believe that, it still hurts. Or that we now have answers for all of our questions about why we or our loved ones experience physical suffering. But it does mean we can trust God for enabling grace to be accepting or receiving of what he has ordained for us rather than being bitter at God that we aren't as healthy as we would like to be. 
So here's an example I came across just this week from Randy Elkhorn. He says, while we were playing softball, my friend John Franklin, at the time a healthy 39-year-old. Okay, so Brett, you're what, 38, 39? Okay, so think Brett's age. Healthy, 38-ish, 39-year-old guy developed a headache and neck pain, so he took himself out of the game. By the time the game was over, he needed help walking. Taking him to the hospital, John became completely paralyzed and unable to speak. Soon he was breathing on a ventilator. John spent seven weeks in ICU and another four months in the hospital. He underwent speech therapy, then a few years of occupational and physical therapy. Now, 22 years later, John is still in a wheelchair. Doctors never discovered why this happened. John's youngest son, who was six years old at the time his father became disabled, wrote to me, quote, I remember always being so mad that God did this to him. Lord willing, next Sunday we're going to be talking about the question, is it okay to be mad at God? So come back for that one. I'll give you a preview. No. (laughs) But please come and find out why. Find out why it's not okay to be angry at God. One day I asked my dad, why aren't you angry? He said, why should I accept good from God and not evil? It's Job 2.10. I've been paralyzed 22 years. I'm still in a wheelchair 22 years later. And I see that as receiving it from God. So that's why I'm not angry at God, because I see it from him. The son, writing back, says, At the time, I was angry at him for saying that. But that experience has forever shaped my view of God and evil. So as we close, there's often a difference between what we believe about God in our minds and what God says about himself in his word. That is not only true when it comes to how we see pain and suffering and how God sees it. It's also true concerning how we see ourselves compared to how God sees us. So we tend to assume we're pretty good people. Not perfect, but overall nice, decent humans. But listen to what God says about us in Psalm 53. God looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's what God sees when he sees the human race. 
not pretty good people, but corrupt people. And we might think, well, okay, I have some flaws, but I can do some good things that would make up for the bad stuff. But God says in Ephesians 2.8.9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves or your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we're out of sync with God there too. It's like, we think we can do something. God says, no, you can't do anything toward this. And many think, well, I should be okay because God welcomes everyone no matter what. Everybody goes to a better place. And this is what Jesus says in John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. If God is showing you you're not in the way that leads to life, first confess, I have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. I am guilty before him. The Bible says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, no exceptions. Turn from sin and turn from ignoring God's rightful authority over your life and turn from trusting in your own attempts to make things right with God. So what Paul says in Romans 9. Romans 9, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. Righteousness means right standing or before God or right in God's sight. Even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, Jewish people, pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. So they're, they're barking up the wrong tree. They're going after it as if it has something to do with their works, what they can do. Paul says they didn't find it because that's the way they tried to get it. It's by faith. It's always been by faith. It's only by faith. And so trust in Christ alone to do everything necessary to rescue you. Believe his death on the cross is the only sufficient payment for the penalty of our sins. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to our own way. Excuse me. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So our iniquity gets laid on Jesus as a substitute. He didn't have any sin of his own. He's bearing the sins of those who will believe in him. So believe that he rose again the third day to show he had accomplished salvation and he's able to save completely and forever those who come to God through him, which is Hebrews 7.25. And for believers, just a text about physical suffering and physical pain and physical illness and disease, be good to remind ourselves that God can and sometimes does heal in this life. It is always okay to ask for that. Philippians 4, 6 says we can make our requests known to God. So that's valid to do that. But 
the bottom line is always not my will, but your will be done. Accepting whatever he decides is best for us, knowing whether he does or not, knowing that all of his children will be completely healed and made whole in the life to come. So some are healed in this life. All will be healed in the next life of his children. So a day is coming. Here's part of our hope. A day is coming when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So that's what's coming. It's not here yet for most people. But it's coming if you're a believer in Christ. So let's close in prayer. Well, Father, these are big things to process. We need your grace to understand your sovereignty, to embrace it in our trials, in our suffering, whatever level that is. Lord, in our own strength, we will complain, we will get bitter, we will believe untrue things about you. And so we need your grace to see you as you have revealed yourself in your word, as the God who is absolutely sovereign, all-wise, all-powerful, all-good, all-loving. You never make mistakes. You are never unkind. You never make any slip-ups. You're just always reigning over all things. And so, Lord, we want to rest in that truth. We want to find peace, a peace that passes understanding that no matter what's happening to us or around us or in our bodies, that we would rest, that you're doing all things well. And I pray again for anyone who has not made their peace with you, still at war with you in their own heart, shaking their fist at you for whatever reason, Lord, that they would bow, submit to you, come to Christ and be rescued from sin and brought into life indeed. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.